How do you look at the world? Uh, maybe for you, you've discovered that the world is a very hostile place. Maybe for you, the world's your oyster. Maybe when stuff is going on, you just assume that breaks are gonna come your way. Maybe your life has shown you that breaks never come your way. For you, it's an uphill slog. Is your glass half full? Is your glass half empty? All of those things are how we look at life, or another word for that is, that's what your worldview is. And we're gonna talk about worldview today, how we look at things, how we interpret things, and we're gonna look at it particularly through Paul's lens in Ephesians chapter two. So think about how you look at the world as we talk about these things. Beginning in Ephesians two, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, how did we leave things last week? With the first two parts of this sermon series, looking through Ephesians this summer, we left it last week with the fact that Jesus is Lord over everything and the head of the church. So that's kind of at the cosmic level. And then now Paul is gonna drop back to the individual, the micro level from the macro level. And then he's gonna jump back out to the cosmic level. He's gonna do this a number of times in this text and throughout the book. You kind of get a bit of a whiplash, but I think you can follow. So a Christian worldview or how we look at things, our interpretive lens starts here, that Jesus is Lord. Now, it doesn't really feel like that sometimes. It feels like, evil is in control or something else is going on. Things aren't always what they appear. Uh, a couple of years ago, we took Bailey, our dog, down for a walk in the harbor and Bailey's a rescue dog. And so you're never quite sure what you're gonna get. And so he's the most loving, kind dog. If you come over to our house, he is a lap dog. But if he is on a leash and he is with us, he's very protective and sometimes it's embarrassing. And so we're walking downtown and we come to another dog who's on a leash and Bailey starts to growl and make terrible sounds and the hackles go up and I'm dragging him to one side. And this other woman, you know, with her little rat dog is, is looking at me with huge eyes and like, he's really very friendly. And she looks at me deadpan and goes, oh yeah, I can tell. And that's how I feel sometimes. You know, Jesus is Lord, but can you really tell? I mean, everything around us seems to be deteriorating and decaying and just awful. But Jesus is Lord. That's what we believe, and that's what has been revealed to us. It feels like things aren't right on so many different levels, though. On the individual level, I mean, just this past week, we, we've got a person who shoots into a crowd and orphans a two-year-old and kills all sorts of people. 
And then in my neighborhood, a bunch of us had to get uh, locking mailboxes because somebody's stealing mail, I guess, you know, for identity theft or something like that. And then walking around the parking lot, which I do a couple of times a day, we're in this period where a lot of people are partying here overnight, which is not great, but I don't mind it so much if they pick up their trash, which they don't. And so we come by in the morning, there's broken bottles and cans and all kinds of other stuff that you don't really want to know about. And I walk around and I'm like, really? You're going to be here? You're not going to clean up after yourself? I mean, people do all kinds of crazy stuff on the individual level. Some of it's a little bit bad and some of it's horrific. But there's also this collective thing. There's more of a societal thing. I mean, why do people do something in a crowd that they would never do as an individual? If you're walking down the street and someone slips and falls in front of you and obviously hurts themselves, most people would run over to help. If you're in a crowd, people will laugh. I know, because I watch fail videos. And what makes an entire group of people lose their minds? So let me give you a safe application. I'll let you make your own politically fraught application to things close to today. But take Germany. Germany has been a historically Christian nation for a thousand years. How does a historically Christian nation allow the Holocaust? Or closer to home, at least today, Russia is ostensibly a Christian nation. How do they decide it's okay to decimate a neighboring country because they want to subjugate them? I mean, what makes people as a group get crazy? It's like there's something in the air or there's something in the water, and that's what we believe exactly. In this passage, Paul talks about there's a spirit of the age. It's called different things in different places, but there's something that's out there and it leads into a certain direction. Now, is there good in the world? Absolutely. For me, I see that as a sign of God's presence and that God is at work holding back the forces of evil in some restraining sort of way. And I'm not really into seeing a demon behind every bush. And we need to be really clear that Satan is not the evil opposite of God. Satan is a created being. Satan is not omnipresent. There's all sorts of differences. But I think we can all agree that there's evil out there and that there are evil forces at work. And that fits into the Christian worldview. Jesus is Lord, but everything is broken. And the brokenness comes from bad choices and selfishness and sin, and those things give evil free reign. Paul says it like this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So on the micro level, we're all broken. And I think this is an important point to think about because most people don't think that they're bad people. I think we can all agree that some people do really bad things and maybe some people really are bad people. And we've all done bad things and maybe we wrestle with whether or not we could ever be forgiven or excused for those things. But most people don't think of themselves as being bad. But almost everyone realizes that they're broken at some level, at least I think. And we don't do a good job of fixing ourselves. And I'm learning that there is a very big difference between self-care and self-medicating. And a lot of what we think is self-care is really only self-medicating. I know, I see the social media posts. So the trajectory that we're on leads to pain and leads to death because it's a trajectory 
that by and large leads away from God and God's priorities and God's purposes. Verse 2. All this in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the macro that we were just talking about. There's evil in the world. And it can be called a lot of things. The spirit of the age, principalities and powers, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But there are these evil forces. And they tend to manipulate human beings and our tendencies and frailties. It's, it's very matrixy. So do we have personal responsibility for our choices? Yes. But there's also pressure out there. You know this if you've ever watched a loved one consistently make choices that are destructive. Maybe an addiction that they just can't give up. Maybe you watch somebody that you love in serial abusive relationships. It's like there's some force out there that is pulling them back from making good choices. And in the Christian worldview, there is a force out there that is pulling us back from making good choices. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, powers and evil authority, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is our condition. We spend a lot of time focused on just gratifying the cravings of our flesh, the things that we want to do. We want what we want when we want it, and we feel like we're entitled to it. And if we want more and if there isn't enough to go around, we're okay with that. Now, I'm kind of a student of, of human behavior. I like to watch people. If for no other reason, there's lots of sermon illustrations out there. Every year, June-ish, I go to a lot of graduations. And graduations are supposed to be these joyous occasions, but really, they're fraught with pressure and anxiety. Uh, this last year, I went to the graduation of my youngest niece, and my brother went ahead of time to save seats. Now, this is a relatively small place. I don't know if there is a bad seat in the house, and how close can you get anyway? You know, they're going to call the kid's name. They're going to be up on the big screen. Everybody yells and claps, you know. And people are getting mad at each other because somebody has taken too many seats, or my brother realized that we needed one more seat, and he very politely asked the woman next to him, who nearly bit his head off, saying, you cannot have our seat. That is my seat. I have my jacket there. You you can't have it, I need that seat. And there's all this stress for something that immediately after the graduation is over, nobody cares about. But people will come to blows about this thing, and this is just how we live. We want what we want when we want it, and we will take it if we need to. This is the situation we find ourselves in. We have a problem. We tend to impulsively do what we want, and it often leads to pain, and we don't seem to be able to fix it. And Paul says, all of us lived among these pressures at one time. I love the fact that this is past tense, because what he wants to remind us of is that in Christ we have moved on from the place where we were totally enslaved to our flesh and its desires, when we were enslaved to the power of the spirit of the age. It's past. And so Paul is reminding them from whence they came. Because we talked a couple of weeks ago how about how Paul is writing this because he's afraid that they're going to forget everything that God has done for, the, for them. They're going to forget the hope they have in Christ. He's like, remember what you were before you met Jesus, and you won't want to go back to that. Verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
by nature deserving wrath. Whose wrath? Well, God's wrath. I don't like the sound of that. An angry God, I mean, God's supposed to be love, right? But if you think about it, I want a God who is angry because there's some things that are worth being angry about. People should not go to bed hungry. There's enough food for everyone. We shouldn't have to do a 6K run to provide water for people who have to walk 6Ks to get it. Everybody should have running water that's clean in their own homes or at least easily accessible to them. Countries shouldn't invade other countries because they want what they have. I want a God who gets mad at stuff like that. I want a God who rails against injustice. I want a God who says, I'm fed up with your empty, pious platitudes, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I don't want a God who looks at my pain and your pain and the incredibly deep pain of so many people around the world that we couldn't even begin to imagine. I don't want a God who looks at that and shrugs his shoulders and says, oh well, y'all work that out. I want a God who gets mad at that stuff. I want a God who wants better for us, for all of us. God doesn't like sin. God doesn't like pain. God doesn't like injustice. I think we want a God who gets angry. We just don't want a God that gets angry with us. And to the extent that if we have participated in the things that God gets angry about, God really isn't happy about that either. So that's the descriptive part of the worldview. Jesus is Lord, we are broken, and God is not happy about the situation. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. But... Despite all of that, all of the chaos, all of the evil, all of the bad choices, all of the dumb things, God's love is still so great that he intervenes and brings hope. God moves us to a different trajectory. Instead of being on a trajectory that leads to pain and ultimately to death, God puts us on a trajectory, on a path that leads to joy and hope and life. That's the glory of the gospel. And notice in here, Paul is using death and resurrection life. We were dead, but now we are raised. We're made alive in Christ. God makes us alive. And we can't miss that. Jesus makes us alive and puts us on this new trajectory that's filled with hope and joy and peace. It's not characterized by legalism and rules and frowns and mean people and no fun and generally making people's lives miserable. It's not bigoted and narrow-minded and oppressive. So how come most people think we are? I mean, we've been saved by grace. We've been raised with Christ into a new life and a new reality. How did we make that not good news? Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. He gave us another chance in order to show us his grace and his kindness. God isn't mad. God wants to help. God wants to intervene. God has intervened. Verse 8, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is kind of the fuller explanation of what's going on here, what Paul has been talking about. And this verse, along with a couple of other verses, but this verse in particular, changed the religious world, changed the scope of Christianity, changed the way that Christianity is expressed, because this verse drove the Reformation. This was the verse that people like Martin Luther's and others really hung their hat on, that we weren't saved by works, we weren't saved by anything that we did, we weren't saved by buying our way out of the hell or purgatory, we were saved by God's grace, which we get through faith. It's so important, because before, you had to earn your salvation. You had to work your way to heaven, and it still happens. I, I have a deep sense of wonder and admiration and some, like, not really understanding this, for another religious tradition that has this great track record of getting its people to take two years out of their lives and dedicate them to mission. I'm pretty happy if people just remember where the church is. But I guess it's easier to get people to do that when you have to earn your salvation. There's also another great religious tradition that says that you should do good things because they might impress God. And if you get to heaven and God is in a good mood and impressed with you, he might let you in, except that you'll never know until you get there. Followers of Jesus can rest in the fact that there's nothing that you can do to earn God's love. It's freely given and it's for sure. But remember, we're loved because God is good, not because we're impressive. Rest in that. But don't rest too much, because that's the temptation that comes from understanding that salvation comes by grace. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You don't have to do stuff to earn God's love. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to change your life. And your life is going to be uh, characterized by doing good things, by good works, by charitable living, by caring deeply about other people, by noticing others, by being compassionate, by working towards helping the people who need the most help. And there's some great language in this passage. It says, we're God's handiwork. Handiwork is, or workmanship is another good word that's used in some translations there. It's something that you make. The actual Greek word there is the word that comes down to us is poem. It means something that you craft carefully. That's what a poem is. It's something that you spend some time on. You find just the right language. You find just the right meter. You spend time creating this thing. And that's the language that's used of us. We are God's poems. We are God's handiwork. God is carefully crafting each one of us. You are not an accident. You've been carefully crafted. You are being carefully crafted. Each one of us is someone that God is making into something for his plan and his purpose. God has his hand in your life. And that might be hard for some of us to hear if we're struggling physically, or if we have other tragedies that we're dealing with, to think, God made me like this, God wants me to be like this. I hate cancer. I, I hate birth defects. I hate wasting diseases. 
uh, there's all kinds of things that cause such pain and suffering to people in their bodies and in their minds. I think they're evidence of the brokenness of the world, not that we've done something bad or that God is mad at you. One of the things that we know is that God is redeeming and renewing and can even use broken people. There's also this line that Paul says, created in advance for us to do. It's easy to skip over that, but it's super important. There is something that you were born for, something specific. God saved you from something, but God saved you for something that was prepared in advance for you to do. God is crafting you to be a part of God's plan. You are not an accident. This is the Christian worldview. This is the way we, we believe things are and the way things should be. That God is redeeming us, God's making everything new, God is making us alive, and God is working out his plan and his purpose around and among us. So let me ask you three questions. How would you describe your worldview? Number two, how does the grace you receive from God affect your life? And number three, what do you think God has for you to do?